0: I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. We want to be looking at your circadian biology. So things like what time you go to sleep at. If you're a night owl, your cortisol levels the next day are going to be really low. If you're snacking at night, like if you're eating at night, cortisol levels are going to be low the next day. You know, medications, like things like antidepressants, will alter your cortisol. They will lower them. I've been fighting
1: with one arm tied behind my back. But what happens when I'm finally set great? What we do in life echoes in eternity.
0: It's supposed to be hard. If it wasn't hard, everyone would do it. The hard it makes it great. Only love. Can truly save the world. This is my mission now, forever. Happy New Year, and welcome to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This is our second AMA, so we talked a lot about hormones. That was the topic du jour, and the questions that we received from our Facebook community were almost exclusively centered around cortisol, stress, inflammation. And uh, we also talked about a lot of, about menstruation and how to really understand how varying levels of hormonal fluctuations during your cycle can influence your mood, your energy, what type of exercises you should be doing, what type of you know, nutritional protocols you can be doing, etc. So I start off by just explaining the normal cortisol. Pattern, the fallacy around the diagnosis of, or, you know, it's not really a diagnosis, but when we talk about adrenal fatigue and why it's important to understand that. And we get into mitochondrial energy and function. We talk about the three main things that really drive energetic production. We talk about you know fuel substrates so whether you are getting you know energy from your diet or if you're fasting you're getting energy from your uh, from your constitution we talked about hormonal regulation and we talked about enzymatic, concentration as well and did a lot a lot a lot on cortisol so how to know when it 's high how to know when it 's low what the optimal curve is what that 's predictive of, and went into like I mentioned you know uh, we had a question come in around spotting and not really knowing when her menstruation starts we talked about how to get rid of uh, belly fat if you have low cortisol levels what that might uh, what might be some of the contributing factors to that, and much much more. So we are recording this just before the new year and I'm moving this production up so that it is the first episode of uh, 2020 and you will notice that my voice is much, uh, dare I say sexier, but much more throaty and sultry and that is because I feel myself fighting whatever virus has been kind of making its rounds. So I am... doubling down on my my tea, my supplements, and my fasting. So hopefully in the next couple of weeks you will uh, see a, a resurgence of my voice because as we went and we talked for probably an hour 20, an hour 30, uh, my voice progressively got lower and lower and lower. So uh, enjoy. Uh, it does sound really good, but it does mean that I'm coming down with something. So, without further ado, please enjoy our second AMA with Stephanie Major. I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizer's Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance, and your recovery and your sleep to the next level i'm often asked like well what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for so there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomal is such All right. Welcome back. This is AMA number two. I have my partner in crime, the Major, otherwise known as Stephanie Major here with me. Welcome back.
1: Thank you so much. I'm excited to be back. Episode number two.
0: Yeah, this is going to be a good one. And uh, you all get the um, pleasure of enjoying my phone voice because I can feel myself, (laughs) my kids, my family, everyone's been sick over the holidays and now I'm starting to get my voice gets the telltale sign for me is my voice gets deeper and deeper and deeper, <laughs> so I can I can tell that my voice is a bit more sultry and a bit more you know velvety. But it may I'm gonna I'm gonna murder this virus, but I can fe- I can feel my throat starting to get a little itchy.
1: Yes, I actually had the same thing going on. So we have our matching cup of teas today that Thanks we'll just sipping sipping through. Being here for the second time makes me think of this really great joke by Chris Rock where he says that. When you're meeting someone for the first time, you're never actually meeting them. You're meeting their representative. So thank you so much for having my representative on uh, the first AMA. But I'm here as me today, vibrant and alluring. And I use those words purposely because you and I have picked our words for 2020. Oh, yeah. Right. This is the first episode going out in the new year. You, for the past couple of years, have been my fairy planner Godmother.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We started with Passion Planner, right? We started being Passion Planner. And now this year we've switched to uh, Danielle Laporte's Desire Map Planner.
1: Okay. So you have to tell your audience about your words because they are such juicy, good words. What are your five core desired feelings for 2020?
0: So this is such a good question. Danielle is so brilliant because when I first picked up this, this planner, I was like, okay, let's see what, let's see, let's see what this is about. I love Danielle. I love everything she does. So she has this brilliant process where you go through all these different categories in your life and you say, how do I want to feel at work? How do I want to feel with my personal relationship? How do I want to feel in my spiritual life, my financial life, my intellectual life, all these different categories. And she gives you these samples of words to choose And so I wrote probably for each category 20 or 30 words in terms of how I wanted to feel, how I wanted to be showing up. Mm
1: -hmm. And I
0: looked for patterns. So I was like, okay, what are the repeating words in each of those categories? And the words that I came up with are luminous, Mm. limitless, Mm. glamorous, strong, and confident. So Glamorous might not be, you know, maybe not in my work world or or maybe, but strong, confident, limitless. I can see myself showing up as the best version of myself at work. You know, in my personal relationship, you know, luminous and glamorous and strong and confident. Like they all there's those words really apply to every area of of my life. I love that.
1: Glamorous just adds a romantic feeling to everything that you're doing. It's a great but, word. Yeah.
0: So
1: the words that I yeah. Oh, sorry.
0: Go, go. Oh, I was just gonna say, you know, for me too. There's been a bit of a falling back in love in 2019. So falling back in love with the red lips, falling back in love with, you know, doing, you know, getting glamorous and doing my makeup and all those kinds of things. So it's uh, it's gonna be great for 2020. What about you? What were your words? I know we've talked about the two, like alluring. What what were your words?
1: Yes, and thank you. You're the one that suggested alluring for me. And at first, I had a visceral reaction to the word. I'm like. I don't know. But when you look at the word and it means magnetic and charismatic, and when you take a deeper dive on the word, I was like, okay, this is a great word. So I have vibrant, alluring, authentic, empowered, and loved.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. (laughs) And you, those are, I feel like those are Uh, already you, but I love why Danielle is such a genius is you just say, okay, what are the, what? how do I want to show up as the best mm -hmm. version of myself today? And you use that word almost like very similar to Todd's alter ego, right? Like, how do I want to show up as Wonder Woman? How do I want to show up as alluring? How do I want to show up as vibrant, you know, glamorous, limitless, luminous, you know, whatever the word is. So, yeah.
1: Okay. Well, we have a big topic to cover today. And I saw all of your notes in the preparation that you were doing. So <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you just start talking about this topic that you are
0: so passionate about? You mean the 21 pages of notes that I made in the shared Google doc that we have? Yeah. Uh, Just a little bit of prep. Okay. So most of the questions, so in our Facebook community, it's a free Facebook community, by the way, if you, this is where we draw our AMA questions from. So if you are listening to this and you have a question that you want me to answer, it is a free Facebook community. It's called the better community. And every month we will post, you know, you kind of get insider stuff in, in the Facebook community. So highly recommend joining that. But we farmed all of our questions around hormones. We said, okay, we're going to do a thing on hormones. We know that we're going to talk about menstruation. We know we're going to talk about women. What are the questions that you want? And overwhelmingly, actually surprisingly, I was surprised by this. I thought we were going to talk about a lot of estrogen stuff. And I thought we were going to talk about thyroid. I thought those were going to be the big stars of the show. But what ended up happening was the cortisol, the stress. How do I lower cortisol? What's going on with my adrenals? Sleep? All of these things came up. So I want to pre-frame before we get into the questions, because there were so many on cortisol and stress and inflammation, the word adrenal fatigue was dropped a couple of times. Uh, so I want to just be a little bit of a nerd and talk about why it's important why nomenclature is really important. So, you know, the words that we use really matter. And I wanna talk about when we're, when we're thinking about cortisol, first we have to understand the Way that it fluctuates during the day, so there's a diurnal or like a circadian rhythm, a diurnal rhythm to, to cortisol, and then how it interplays with things like sleep, you know, how other hormones come into play with it, pregnenolone, progesterones, uh, etc. So, if you can just give me like a couple of minutes to, as a pre, like as a runway before we dive, before we take off, because I think that this will be really useful for the listener in terms of understanding cortisol in general.
1: I am so ready. Go ahead.
0: All right. So, first thing I just want to say is when we think about human health, it is very easy to get very mechanistic about it. We want to just go in and pluck out the hormone, you know, divorce it from its surroundings and its interactions and study and say how can we fix, you know, cortisol? How can we fix estrogen? How can we fix whatever whatever the problem is? And it is very much Uh, You you fail when you do that. We really want to be thinking about the forest from the trees. You can't just isolate cortisol in isolation. You can't just isolate estrogen in isolation or whatever hormone or whatever condition or disease you are thinking about. There are multiple interactions. We want to look at the forest from the trees as well as the individual trees themselves, uh, so to speak. And when we think about the word adrenal fatigue, this is, again, nomenclature really matters. And, you know, I'm I have been a card carrying member of the adrenal fatigue team. I've used that term before because it is sometimes easier to say to somebody, okay, these sound like it's a cluster of symptoms that the patient is is typically describing. They're typically talking about things like needing to snack frequently, needing to uh, you know, feeling tired and wired, like this problem of falling asleep and, and staying asleep in the evening. You know, weight gain through the belly, particularly like we tend to see like weight gain through the waist area, brain fog, lack of energy in the morning. Like Giovanni and I have worked really hard on this because he would wake up, you know, at eight, let's say, and at nine thirty or ten, he'd be like, "God, I need a nap." So, you know, he used to say, "God, like my adrenals—they're shot." So, you might look at those things and say, "Okay, it's my adrenals that are shot." But on a cellular level, what we're really talking about is the ability for your body to produce energy. So we're talking about the mitochondria, we're talking about the efficiency or lack thereof, of their ability to produce energy. So, you know, bringing you back to your nightmares to, you know, high school human biology, Mm -hmm. mitochondria, air quotes, powerhouse of the cell, they produce ATP, which is your, we are producing ATP every single second, you know, that we've been talking, uh, we are producing ATP. So, we want to be thinking about mitochondrial efficiency circadian rhythm and biology and how that can potentiate cortisol and other and how that can affect essentially other hormones and their regulation or dysregulation so when we're thinking about cortisol i want to i want you to not think about oh i have too high or too low cortisol or what I want you to think more about the curve. So this is actually really, really important when we're thinking about cortisol, it has a circadian flow or an ebb and flow to it. So in the morning we have, so when we think about the cortisol, it's like a slope. So it, it's at its peak or at its zenith, you know, the most you'll ever have it is, you know, about 20 to 30 minutes after waking. And that's called the cortisol awakening response or CAR. And from there, there's like a stepwise attenuation over the course of the day, meaning that over the course of the day, you're going to get a decrease in cortisol as the day goes on so that in the evening time, you, are, you should have pretty low cortisol and that's going to help coordinate with other uh, sleep hormones like adenosine and melatonin in order to uh, initiate sleep.
1: Can it go back up? Throughout the day, or it always its maximum is so. If you've had a you know an intense meeting or something stressful has happened, does your cortisol then go up, or does it continue
0: to go down? That's a great question. So what I'm describing is what we would like to see. Yeah. <laughs> so we'd like to see almost yeah. like a ski slope. We want to see high in the morning and then low, 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 like kind of you know progressive uh, decrease over the course of the day. Mm-hmm. What I have found, especially with moms, so this is really interesting. Around three or four o'clock. Cortisol spikes. Why? Kids are coming home. (laughs) Kids are coming home. Right? Uh, Or you know, you can see someone who has late meetings. You can see that cortisol spike. So it is absolutely possible to see cortisol spike if you've had a really stress. You know, you've had a really stressful fight with someone. You know, your body is going to prime itself. Cortisol is part of this sympathetic. Nervous system. So you are going to increase your sympathetic tone with stressors. So and that and good and bad stressors. So you know with exercise, your cortisol is going to get jacked. You know with a fight with your loved one or a really stressful meeting or you know kids are doing something that they shouldn't. Whatever, your cortisol is going to go. Uh, your your cortisol cortisol. Pardon me is going to fluctuate. But what we want to be working on is normalizing the slope. That shouldn't be happening every single day. Mm-hmm. And I'm doubling down on the slope because it's predictive of longevity. Like the the slope in and of itself is predictive of your lifespan, so how long you're gonna live, cardiovascular disease and Alzheimer's uh, among other things. So it's really important for us to get the cortisol slope looking it's almost like a hollowed out sea, right? It almost looks like a C or like I call it a ski slope.
1: It's the new sexy curve is your
0: The new sexy curve. You got it. Exactly. So just to to kind of come back to that nervous system for a moment the thing that i want everybody to remember about cortisol and stress and this is where i think we forget this is it is a counter regulatory hormone a lot of us think oh my i'm stressed my cortisol and that's why like that's why i'm overweight cortisol is actually designed to counteract the effects of insulin so Cortisol and a couple other hormones, um, epinephrine, which is commonly referred to as adrenaline, growth hormone, glucagon. These are designed to defend against hypoglycemia. So insulin is supposed to take the blood glucose and shove it in the cell. Cortisol is going to defend against that. So when you are having a fight with your loved one or your kid is, you know, driving up the wall or what have you, you are going to see things like increase in your blood glucose because that's cortisol getting the glucose. Uh, or defending against insulin so that you can get that glucose into the periphery, into the muscles, so you can fight or flight. You can either fight the impending you know, stress or you can get, you can run away from it. So that's really important to remember. And with cortisol and with this stress response, the idea around it is it's supposed to be short-lived. So you're supposed to have, you know, the the tiger, you know, the proverbial tiger that, you know, pops up in front of you. It's supposed to be a short thing. You either are gonna win against a tiger or you're not. We're not designed to constantly be activating that stress response. That increase in sympathetic tone over time really leads to this chronic low grade stress or, you know, I use inflammation and stress really interchangeably. So chronic low grade inflammation and that affects the cortisol curve. I just wanted to talk about that and I also if I can just add in a wrinkle because all healthcare is not so straightforward. It would be so great if we could just say, oh well, we just got to optimize the cortisol curve. Sometimes I've had many, many patients who check off all the subjective boxes. So they are tired and wired, need coffee all the time, belly weight, salt cravings, you know, blood sugar dysregulation, but we look at their cortisol and it's normal. So it's not necessarily always cortisol. It can be But the other thing we want to be thinking about, especially as it relates to brain fog and having some, someone will describe like very poor resilience, like they can't handle a lot of stress because they already feel so stressed. We want to be thinking about energy. We want to be thinking about this on a cellular level. We want to be thinking about this in terms of our mitochondria, because those are, like I mentioned before, the thing that actually produces the energy that we have. So if you are feeling brain fogged, you know, Tired and wired, you need external or exogenous sources like caffeine to kind of get you going. It may not necessarily be that your cortisol is not working the way that it should. It may be that your capacity, like your mitochondrial efficiency, may be jacked. And we can kind of go on, you know, a geeky magic carpet ride with things that affect energy production. We can kind of get into it. But, you know, essentially the things that are going to affect your energy are kind of three main categories, and we're going to talk about all of them today. One is your substrate availability, how much food, you know, both external and internal food that you have. So when I say internal food, I mean fat, like excess adiposity. Mm. Hormonal regulation. So does your insulin have an appropriate response to blood glucose? Does your glucagon have an, you know, appropriate response to a fallen blood glucose? And then your genetics, really, like enzymatic modification. So what is the structure of the enzyme that's driving forward the process for making ATP, and how and the concentration of that? So. I pre-frame all of this kind of science-y, nerdy goodness, because I think it'll answer, it'll put the questions, how I answer the questions in context. We want to be thinking about cortisol, but we also want to be thinking about other things like the other hormones that are designed to counteract insulin. We want to be thinking about mitochondrial efficiency, oxidative stress, and chronic low-grade inflammation.
1: Okay. So we're going to start with a question from Ashley, who is in Phoenix, Arizona. A personal question to you about fasting. How do you incorporate a whole food cooked dinner on TRE? For instance, my fiance and I are medical professionals and do not get off work until 7 p.m. We start our day at 6 a.m. and can put off eating our first meals until later. But as for getting home and throwing together a dinner, we often end up eating around 9 p.m., which feels too close to bedtime when you're aiming for a 10 to 11 p.m. bedtime to wake up at 6 a.m. Even with food prep, should we just give up sharing a meal together and eat dinner at work? I'm just wondering how others accomplish this and whether we should just stop correlating food with being social during the work week.
0: That's a great question. I would say that there's a couple of different options here and they may or may not be relevant or they may or may not work for her depending on, you know, her lifestyle. One, it may be possible that you can give up correlating food with being social during the work week. You know, maybe you make time with your husband to have purposeful, you know, connection and communication over the weekend when you have a little bit more time. If you want to try and play around with it, there's, a, there's two things that I thought of when I read this question. One is invest in a crock pot. So that has been, I mean, you, you've been over to the house major, you know how often this thing is used. It is probably my most used appliance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I throw like my frozen meat. I get my meat uh, delivered uh, from a company in. uh, We're in Canada, so we use uh, or in Ontario we use True Local, which is you know grass-fed, grass-finished meats, all that stuff. So I will take it from the freezer, throw it in the crockpot, along with some bone broth, and then you know, a couple minutes before dinner time, I'll just throw in some chopped, you know, broccoli or carrots or, you know, whatever it is so they can steam lightly just so they're a little bit softer and then serve it in the serve it in the stew. And also we've also, I was very Italian this year. I made my own tomato sauce with one of my friends, Maria Christina, and uh, we made it at her house, like on her driveway. So I have like 48 bottles of tomato sauce. So I'll just throw the tomato sauce in with the frozen meat and then it's kind of done. So that might help with your food prep so that maybe you're eating closer to eight o'clock versus nine if you're trying to get to bed by 10. So it gives you that still that two hour window where your stomach can empty and that'll help facilitate a better quality of sleep. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I thought of, and I don't know if this is available to her, but she can flip her meal times altogether. So I know that she's trying to get time with the hubby at the end of the day, so she's trying to get the meal at the end of the day together. She can try to have the first meal of the day. So flip her eating schedule such that she's eating her, her you know, her breakfast with her husband, and then they can fast. You know, she, they can have lunch, you know, separately. But then in the evening they're fasting, so they're, there's no need to rush in and you know get me you know, get something on the table, and then that can be really like connection time. You can. Be talking, you can ha- be having sex, you can, you know, all these different, you know, things that are important that we tend to forget with our partners through the hustle and bustle of the work week. So those would be my two suggestions. And if either of those are not really viable, then I would say, you know, make sure that you're, you are spending some time on the weekend for meaningful connection with your partner. If doing it in a social way is important for you.
1: I love those suggestions. Okay. The next one from Sarah is I'll take any advice you've got on cortisol. I know it's highest in the morning and one should hold off their first cup of caffeine so as not to coincide with its zenith. What other pearls might you have specifically on how to lower it other than meditation, mindfulness, adaptogens?
0: Okay, so this is why I had that long preamble because we're yeah. kind of getting into these cortisol questions now. Like I said before, cortisol is going to be highest you know, within the first 20 or 30 minutes of waking. That's your CAR, your cortisol awakening response you don't actually want to lower that. So I think her question was, how can we lower it in the morning? You don't want to do that. You want your cortisol to be at its highest point, at its peak the zenith in the morning, and then you want it to come down after that. When I read her question, I think the spirit of the question is around stress management. Like, how do I lower my cortisol? How do I I lower my stress management? And this is where we want to be engaging in a different type of stress that eustress, E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S, you stress e u s t r e s s u meaning good for you stress, and lowering distress and inflammation. So saying this another way, the morning would be a great time to prime and adhere to the concept of a hormetic stress, meaning a stress but for resiliency and ad- adaptation for the mitochondria. So we might say that you know if you put those two words together, we're talking about mitohormesis or a mitohormetic effect. So, a couple ways to do this depending on your capacity, depending on your tolerance and your resilience. It might mean taking a really cold shower in the morning or at least making the last minute of your shower really really cold because that is v- v- you know, any extremes in temperature whether it be a uh, heat or cold is a stressor to our mitochondria so we are going to make them stronger over the long term. So, I really like to, you know, have a normal shower, but then that last minute, all the heat goes off. So you're, it's almost like jumping in a lake. Like if you've ever gone north in the summertime, you're at a cottage or something, and you just jump that first jump in the lake. You're like, oh my! Hurts so good. Hurts so good. <laughs> it hurts so good. It hurts so good. Exactly. I would say other things like exercise would be another hormetic stress. So it's a good stress. Breathing techniques like Wim Hof breathing techniques, so you're oxygenating uh, your body, and maybe it's fasting as well. Like maybe you're skipping breakfast, maybe you're a little bit hungry. You start eating, you know, at noon, one o'clock, two o'clock, that kind of thing. I'm not such a big fan on adaptogens, especially in the morning. You don't necessarily want to lower things in the morning. And what I was sort of leaning to towards, you know, some, someone who wakes up with really low energy. So this is something that Giovanni has struggled with, you know, for years. I mean, he's much, much better now, but we want to be looking at why your cortisol levels are low, if they are low, because sometimes someone could be, you can have completely normal cortisol levels. Like I was saying, it's just your mitochondria not functioning well. But if we do test, you know, salivary or urine testing, and we see that your cortisol levels are low, we want to be looking at your circadian biology. So things like what time you go to sleep at. If you're a night owl, your cortisol levels the next day are going to be really low. If you're snacking at night, like if you're eating at night, cortisol levels are going to be low the next day. You know, medications, like things like antidepressants will will alter your cortisol. They will lower them. Poor sleep lowers your cortisol. And, and even things like being overweight, like having excess adiposity or excess fat on the body is going to have a lower... You're going to see when we, when we take that Cortisol measurement in that first 20 or 30 minutes, we're going to see that those levels are low. So those are, that would be, uh, you know, the same principles really do apply. We want to be working on mitochondrial efficiency and also working on lifestyle factors that are going to help your hormonal regulation. So reducing your excess adiposity, making sure that your circadian biology is on point, um, stop eating in the evening, that kind of stuff.
1: Okay. Now we're going to ask, what's your preferred method for hor- hormone testing, Dutch test or serum panels?
0: Uh, I like both. Uh, I think the more information you have, the better you can constellate patterns. It, of course, it always depends on the on the person who is you know, the patient in front of me and what their goals are. Because you can look at some of the other things. You can look at some organic acid tests. So you can look at other things that affect energy, you can look at methylmalonic acid. You can look at B six. You know, hormonal variant variants. You can look at cortisol versus cortisone. So I I, I like the Dutch. Uh, it's it's one of my favorites, but I also you know like I said, depending on the woman or the man who I'm I'm working with, I'll also look at genetic reports as well. So I want to know how efficient or inefficient the gene is at its conversion. So we said before, when we're thinking about energy, substrate availability, hormones, and enzymatic modification, you know, the genetic and epigenetic expression of that gene is going to be important. So if there's a woman who, you know, we're suspecting PCOS, for example, I want to understand how quickly her progesterone changes to her testosterone and then how quickly her testosterone uh, is being converted if at all to uh, dihydroxytestosterone or DHT, the super testosterone. So I might look at, you know, sip seventeen A one. Like I might look at the SNPs, you know, seventeen A one or SRD five A two. These are like different genetic SNPs mm-hmm. that are going to tell me how efficient or inefficient she is at moving this along uh, the pathway. Same thing with estrogen. I want to know, you know, what her preferential you know, when we're thinking about the protective versus, you know, the the DNA damaging um, estrogens, I'm going to want to know genetically what her predisposition is so that I can kind of create protocols for her. So I guess it's a long way of answering and saying, I like it all. Yeah. And
1: the good thing about the genetic testing as well as the Dutch Is that they can do it at home. So you don't have to go to a clinic and have them draw blood. It's just if you want to skip that one step, you're able to, you know what, get it done, mail it away, uh, get some information back. It's like,
0: isn't a self addressed stamped envelope? It's so easy, (laughs) you know? And it's like, you don't have to wait in line and, you know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. Okay. So Jenny's asking, uh, cortisol, how to know if you have high cortisol, how to lower it? when should it be high and when should it be low? JJ Virgin, I think is one people, one of the people that I've heard say women shouldn't do intermittent fasting in the morning. The women should eat right after they get up because it'll mess up their cortisol.
0: Yeah, so I think we've talked about when it's high and when it's low. So we've done that, you know, that ski slope. We've, we've answered that already. JJ Virgin, one of my mentors, uh, she is a unique animal. I don't think I've met anyone exactly... Like her, she has the fortitude... She's actually going to be on the podcast. We were uh, emailing the other day and I was like, you got to come on. You got to talk about your mindset because it is something to be be witnessed. Like her, she is just Teflon. She's amazing. Mm -hmm. So... I've had a lot of discussions with her around intermittent fasting and uh, the ketogenic diet because those, those are two things that I really talk about a lot in terms of the changing the constitution of uh, you know in terms of female physiology and hormones and adiposity and weight loss and stuff. And for her constitution specifically, uh, what we've talked about is she does not like to do long fasts. So she has I don't know one percent body fat. You know something rad- like she's like lean all year round. Like I you know, i probably sit at around 17%, maybe 18% body fat when Mm -hmm. I'm watching my diet. And if I want to get, you know, if I want to kind of enter into sort of the competition zone, like I have to really watch my diet and work out and all that kind of stuff. She's pretty, like, I think she hangs around at like 14 or 15% body fat without even trying. Like she's, Mm -hmm. she's unbelievable. So for her long-term fasts are really, she doesn't do well on them. So she likes to, her type of fasting is a daily time restricted eating so she will maybe skip breakfast or she will skip dinner you know she travels a lot so kind of depending on you know where she is so she will only intermittent fast but she won't do anything more than that because her constitution doesn't really allow for that mm-hmm. for the most part I mean if we were all like JJ we would all be we would all be better off because she's got muscle she's lean she's got the mindset like she is whip smart so I would say uh, for the for the most of the population, intermittent fasting is a great idea so restricting your you know when we talk about TRE restricting your eating window mm-hmm. i read i read somewhere it was crazy it was something like it was an american stat it was americans the only time that americans fast is when they're sleeping it was like something like they're eating from like the minute they wake up to the minute they go to sleep and you know you can make the argument around sleep like we're not even sleeping as much as we should right we're only sleeping like 6 hours 5 hours whatever yeah so jj The type of keto that I employ is something that's very much aligned with her. So, you know, the lots of green leafy vegetables as the base, lots of, you know, meat, like good quality meats and, uh, you know, fat as well. But she doesn't do long-term fast because she just doesn't have the body fat to, to sustain it.
1: Right. Okay. So, and Jenny also asked how to know if you have high cortisol. So that is with the testing, right? Oh yeah. Sorry.
0: Yeah. So that would be with the testing. So like you would either do a, I'd I'd probably do the Dutch um, and we would want to, like one of the things we have to be really, really, really mindful of when you're doing any type of testing is the timing because cortisol changes all day long. So if you take a test, you know, your first, you know, if you're doing salivary cortisol, you have to do it within the first 20 minutes of waking up same thing you have to also note the time of day when you're doing the dutch which is the it's a dried uh, dried urine so it's a urine test so you're basically peeing on a on a piece of paper and then you're you send it off to the lab for analysis
1: all right so john from canada says what is the relationship between sleep optimization and hormone optimization
0: oh so much <laughs> so much i i often i often will joke that you can do everything right. You can have all the eating. You can do all the exercising. You can do all the meditation. If you're not sleeping well, it doesn't matter. Like you can't be healthy. It's the first domino. So when we when we think about lack of sleep, and when I say lack of sleep, I mean less than seven hours. Mm-hmm. So that's the, that's another really important thing as well. For some reason in our culture, we fetish you know we fetishize this idea of Oh, I can just get by on six, or I can do five. And you've heard like presidents talk, like I think Ronald Reagan, I think Margaret Thatcher has talked about. It. I think even you know the um, current president, or is he the president anymore? Is he impeached? I don't know. Something <laughs> Donald Trump. I think he's talked <laughs> about it as well. Yeah. <laughs> TBD. <laughs> They talk about this ability to just go on five hours of sleep and they're like, oh, I'm fine. It's like, you're actually not fine. (laughs) You know, because what happens is you become much more driven by the sympathetic nervous system. So that fight or flight response that we talked about earlier. And we see hormonal changes as well. So we start to be, we become much more, like our fuel partitioning becomes much worse. When you have poor sleep, less than seven hours, you are going to increase your resting energetic expenditure. So. You're also going to be increasing your respiratory quotient, which is your RQ is basically the way that they determine is it. like They put a mask on your face and they determine how much carbon dioxide to oxygen ratio uh, you're breathing in and out. And from that, they can determine how much carbohydrates you're burning, how much proteins and fats. So the, the measurements that they use is 0.7 is you're primarily using fats, 0.8 or 9 is proteins, and 1 is carbohydrate. So as you decrease your sleep the more you turn into a carbohydrate burning machine and not a fat burning machine. You become much more glycolytic. your beta oxidative capacity uh, reduces, which is how we burn our fat. Your insulin gets jacked, so we have lots of like so you look almost diabetic. If we were to take a look at your blood glucose, uh, pardon me, your insulin levels in your in your blood, you have a tendency to eat more carbohydrates. like you've have you ever had like a night where you haven't slept well and the next oh, yeah. day you're like, All the carbs.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Give me all the carbs. Mm -hmm. And then all your hormones, we get like your thyroid hormones get jacked, your leptin levels, your leptin is your satiety hormone. So that actually lowers the less sleep you have, the more hungry, like the less full you feel. And then ghrelin, which is sort of the pair, the other side of that, which is your sort of signals when you're hungry, that will get jacked up. Cortisol levels go up, your sex hormones, they go down. So your testosterone, estrogens, progesterones are... You, they, at the expense of producing more cortisol, we have less of those sex hormones being produced. So there's a really intimate connection between sleep and hormones. And whenever I'm working with, particularly women, I always joke, it's like the cheapest diet. Like Before you start engaging with me, with the Estima diet, with the Estima protocol, just sleep for eight hours a night for a week.
1: Okay. But what about the woman that's going, Dr. Stephanie, I'm trying, I'm going to bed. I'm trying to get sleep, but I keep waking up and I can't go back to sleep quickly. What does that woman do? She wants sleep. What does she do?
0: So we're going to link out to my article, the uh, Sleep Your Way to the Top, because I go through 21 ways there, but there's a couple of ways that we can think about developing healthy sleep habits. One is stress management. So I know that it's really easy to be like reduce your stress but uh, you know really have the courage to look at where your stressors are coming from. Chiropractors talk about stress in three different dimensions and you know this can be extrapolated it's not just chiropractors that talk about this a lot of people do but I grew up in chiropractic, so we talk about you know physical stressors, we talk about chemical stressors that can be you know environmental toxins, diet, and emotional stressors. These things all jack up your sympathetics so if you are constantly like if you don't take care of your you know your posture or your nagging low back pain, you develop these compensatory patterns, you have chronic low grade inflammation in the physical realm if you yeah. have a pro inflammatory diet or you have you've been exposed to mold or, and you don't know it or you know, you know, you constantly are putting on toxic makeup and you ha- you're you know, eating your food out of plastics and you are gonna be jacking up your chemical stressors. Same is true for your emotional. Like if you experience trauma, however you wanna define that as a child, if you were you know, treated poorly as a child, as an adolescent, physical abuse, mental abuse, sexual abuse, or even if it's just, it doesn't have to be that extreme, any sort of trauma that you've endured um, that you have, that you have not dealt with still lives today in your, in your nervous system. Mm -hmm. So having the courage to lean into that would be, that's probably its own topic. It's probably its own podcast.
1: That's a sexy topic. I love this. We have to do an entire episode about sleep and, um,
0: But, but I think that the blue blocking, like, so if you, if you start doing simple things like blue blocking glasses, particularly in the evening, like if you're watching TV or you're on your device, you're on your phone, wearing, and we'll put a link. I think I have, um, I have a TrueDark discount. Mm -hmm. It's like 10%. I'll put it in the show notes for people if they want to look at it. Things like making your bedroom cold. So in the article, I talk about, you know, getting your bedroom to like 65 degrees Fahrenheit or 15 degrees centigrade. Or even using things like the chili pad. I love this thing. So, and for like peri and pre and like postmenopausal women, it's like a godsend. If you're hot and you're having hot flashes overnight, this chili pad is gonna save you. Yeah, so, so that would be, and, and I would also say, you know, making sure that your electrolytes are balanced as well. That's another really big thing. You know, we, we, we wanna be making sure that we're having salt. It's been demonized. We talk about like, oh, we'll have to reduce my salt. No, put some, have some Himalayan salt in your water. Like, you need salt.
1: Love salt. Okay. I
0: love salt. (laughs) Salt over everything. Mm -hmm. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount, that is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N dot com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout.
1: Really interested in the relationship between hit and cortisol. I'm seeing a lot of people, especially those Post forty-five that are doing HIT daily or five times per week.
0: Oh, that's a gym at forty-five. Oh, is it? I I think it's a gym. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Okay. Right. F forty-five that are doing HIT daily or five times per week. My understanding is that this would not be healthy and leave us with constant stress levels, especially if we have a high stress lifestyle. Thoughts? Mm -hmm. My background: I was doing HIT for every workout and was addicted to the rush that I could not shift belly fat, stress hormones, or being a twin mom?
0: I was so happy to see this question come in because I have been waiting for an opportunity to talk about muscles. <laughs>
1: there it is. So, That's your runway, go.
0: So when we think about the type of muscles that we utilize when we are doing high interv- like so high intensity interval training, it is very different. We have, we have a, well, actually let, let me back up one more second we have three different main types of muscles. We have type one muscles, we have type 2A and type 2B. Mm-hmm. So type one is the, um, these have the, they oxidize fat really well. They have the highest density of mitochondria in them. And, um, and we know that fat can only be oxidized in, uh, in the mitochondria and they don't need to contract as forcefully. So they, are, they have a, a propensity to burn fat. They don't really burn glucose. So you today, you know, we're recording this in, in my home.
1: Mm-hmm. You
0: walked over to, you walked over here, right? Yeah, I walked yeah, over yeah. <laughs> Good for my example. So you, yeah. know, you use those type one fibers walking over because they, they're not going you could probably walk for hours and hours and hours and hours before you would fatigue those muscles.
1: Mm-hmm. So those are going to
0: be primarily your fat uh, burning, if you will, uh, muscle fibers because of their dense, because of the high concentration of mitochondria that type one fibers have. So then we move into type two and type one are typically called slow twitch. Type two are, are typically called fast twitch. They're divided into 2A and 2B. So 2A, they have a lower, they have a lower mitochondrial density than their type one counterparts, but they can also metabolize glucose. So these these are used in steady state cardio, Uh, they're used in weight, like resistance training as well. You know, if you go for a run, like when I'm on, when I'm on my bike and I'm doing, you know, kind of a steady state workout or you're going for a run outside or something, you still have that fat burning that, you know, you still have that fat oxidation, that beta oxidation, but now you can also use glucose as well. So you can also be using, you know, whether it's glucose from your, you know, stored glycogen or from an external source. Now, type two B is what is really involved in the sprinting and the high-intensity interval training. So, these don't actually have a lot of mitochondria in them. They are mainly glycolytic, meaning that they primarily use glucose as their fuel. Mm. And when you are doing sprinting, when you are doing you know high like that hit workout, uh, you are primarily using these. Now these are often called anaerobic and it's it's a bit of a misnomer. It's not that you're not using oxygen, you're just superseding the mitochondria's ability to use oxygen, so you have to go into different energetic sta- uh, energetic systems. So the one word of caution I want to use uh, or you know when she was saying she does hit five times a week, first of all I think that's or she was doing it five times a week. Mm. It's an extraordinary extraordinary amount of time and when you are you know superseding that aerobic capacity of the mitochondria, if you supersede the glycolytic active like the the glycolytic capacity of those type two fibers so their ability to burn glucose, what ends up happening is you actually stop using all energy systems what you use is the at so we store a little bit of like we have like an emergency fund of ATP in our muscles that are there any given time there it's already preformed doesn't need to go through the Krebs cycle none of that you don't have to do any uh, um Uh, Aerobic glycolysis or oxfos. So it can just, you can just jump into the ATP because it's there. But there's not a lot there. But if you're constantly superseding, if you're constantly tiring out those type 2b fibers, you're not actually burning anything. You're just using the ATP that's in the muscle. So I suspect yeah would
1: that contribute to the belly fat that she has or is
0: that yeah. 100% because she's first of all she's not she's not varying the type of workout that she's doing so i would at, at the very basic i would say you should be doing hit you know once or twice a week if you already have a high stress lifestyle you know a steady state workout is going to be really really great for you you're gonna, now you're going to be moving into those type 2a fibers or going for a long walk is also really important in terms of of beta or fatty oxidation the other thing is and this is this happens all the time with with my type A personalities like my you know go-getters they we completely disregard where we are in our menstrual cycle. Wow.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And there's
0: a time and a place for hit. And and I really really want to drive this point home where I want women to really learn how to harness the power of your menstrual cycle because there are ebbs and flows in terms of hormonal fluctuations, energetic capacity. When we think about the highest points where we have the most energy it's right around ovulation testosterone's high you know you're feeling really great you're probably really sexy and you're like let's you know let's have lots of you know lots of sex lots of fun that's the that's a really great time to be doing hit when is a not a great time to be doing hit is leading up to your period and maybe even the first couple of days of your period because you are you know you're shedding an organ right it's 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 taxing so I know there's another question around menstruation in here somewhere, but I think that learning how to harness the power, A, of your menstrual cycle and B, recovery. Because if you, all your gains, you know, your nutrition, your physical gains, they all happen in the recovery. It happens when you sleep and it happens when you have active rest days. So if you don't allow yourself to recover, your body is going to hold onto that fat like an insurance policy. Because it's not—it's you're constantly stressing the body out. Your body's like, when am I going to get a break? I'm trying to shed this organ. I'm not getting—I'm not getting the, the rest and the rejuvenation that I need. I need to hold on to this fat because this is going to be—you know—I'm in—I'm in this for the long run.
1: All right, and you are so correct. The next question actually does talk about women's cycles. So you've talked about the best times in a women's cycle for longer fasts, but can you outline how to know exactly when those parts of the cycles are happening? i.e. I don't have a hard start date of when I start menstruating because there is about a week of spotting that leads up to her menstrual period.
0: Did we talk about menstruation on the last AMA. I can't recall. We did, but
1: I think that we said we were going to go into a deeper dive on it on this episode.
0: Okay. Okay. Let's do that. Let's do that now. So let me, let me pre-frame this. We're going to talk about the spotting and how to figure out when you're, when you're ovulating and when your period starts. But mm-hmm. first let's actually just talk about a normal cycle because I think we need to establish what normal is first
1: right. and
0: then we can compare and contrast. Cause I don't think I was doing um, a couple months ago now, I was uh, giving a presentation for you know, a bunch of high functioning female entrepreneurs and I was talking about their period and literally they were all like jaws on the ground. They were like, oh my God, that explains so much. And we don't know, we don't actually tap into, we just think we're like so, so many of us, we think we're just little men yeah and oh this period is an inconvenient you know thing, but if you learn your rhythm and your cycle, you can actually make incredible progress both as a woman in terms of your metabolism in terms of your body composition and you you get to know yourself like your period is a vital sign it is it is you know considered a vital sign for women so with that being said, um let's kind of Pretend like your cycle is twenty-eight days because that really evenly divides divides into seven, which is a week. Now, mm-hmm. if your, you know, normal period is gonna be so anywhere from like twenty-six, twenty-seven days to thirty-three-ish. Like there can be there can be variance here. The week one is your bleed, right? That's your period. That's when uh, your endometrial lining is shedding. And this is a great time. So I think she had said, like, you've talked about this. This is the best time for a fast, in my opinion, for a woman. Reason being is that your progesterone levels are very low during this time, and so is your estrogen. And progesterone is a very potent appetite stimulant, and we know, like the lead, you know the week leading up to your period, you're just like give me all the food. I'm so I'm like ravenous. Wow. So this is a really nice time to fast. It's a nice time to rest. And when you're and typically when you're fasting, you're not exerting it like you're not doing as hard workouts at the gym. You're you know, so I love I love a fast during the the your period week week two. So the week post period, we -hmm. start to see estrogen rising and testosterone rising. This is the best time for a heavy weight workout. We want to profit from the fact that our testosterone is going up. So we want to be able to use testosterone to drive muscle protein synthesis and muscle, like increasing our muscle mass. So I love to do heavy workouts, like suit, like, super heavy workouts during this time. And yeah. you have the capacity for it because you have estrogen and testosterone rising. And I promise you, you will not turn into she-hulk. You probably are also going to feel like your libido is like, you're going to be like flirty and you know horny and you're going to want sex. You're going to be chasing it like the animal that you are because mother nature is a wily minx. And she knows that if you have sex around this time, sperm can last for up to seven days. So if you are kind of you know, having sex nearing your ovulation and you have a couple of guys, couple of sperm hanging out up there, then you can fertilize the egg. So again, when we think about like, you know, and you can use that information in terms of your goals. If you want to fall pregnant, that would be the time for you to have lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of sex. If you do not want a child, then maybe we want to be thinking about other things other than penetration, and again, totally separate podcast. <laughs> We're doing that episode though. We're <laughs> <laughs> that episode is coming. I need to find the guest. I need to find the right guest for that. So midpoint in your cycle is ovulation. Okay, so we have this hormone called l- luteinizing hormone. I like to call LH the you know the the uh, the loud uncle that comes over for family dinners. They you know and they see you and they're like, hey, Steph, nice to see you. Whack, you know, hits you you know hits hits you on your back and you sort of spit out whatever you're eating. That's, that's exactly what happens. So luteinizing hormone is going to basically cause the follicle to spit out the mature egg, and then she's going to hang around for about 24 hours, maybe 48 hours sort of maximally, waiting around for fertilization. Week three, testosterone drops. Okay, so now the hormonal landscape is changing. That follicle has now changed into something that is called the corpus luteum, and that is going to be secreting progesterone. So now progesterone is the queen of this area of your menstrual cycle. So we see progesterone rising. It peaks at about day 21. Uh, Testosterone drops, you're going to see a secondary rise in estrogen. And um, still a really great time for weights. We just want to be thinking about our energy levels here as well. So maybe your weights are a little bit lighter. They're not as heavy as they were the week before. Uh, You could do more reps, lighter weight. Fasting, I've, I've done fasting during this time. Uh, I find the week before my period is usually the hardest because that's when your progesterone is, is the highest on its way down. And you know in that fourth week, if there's no fertilization, like the egg and the sperm have not met, the corpus luteum now is going to degenerate and the the corpus luteum is the thing that's been secreting that progesterone that whole time, like kind of keeping the endometrial lining thick. Mm-hmm. So now, without that supply, the endometrial lining is going to become ischemic; it's going to die. Uh, and that's you know the on- like and so the shedding of that is is the you know the period, and then we start the whole thing over again. Yeah. Now, this question was about spotting. Yeah. So spotting during the luteal phase. So in the same way. So when we think about. What starts our period, it's that sudden drop in progesterone. The corpus luteum is like, okay, this bitch isn't this, you know, this girl is not fertilized. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna just shed. We got to start this whole thing over again.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Spotting, the same reason why we have the sudden drop in progesterone that can initiate your menses. If you have uh temporary drops in progesterone in that luteal phase, in that second phase, you can get spotting. So what that tells me is that. This person is, you know, I don't know what her age is, but it's probably that her progesterone levels are low. Mm -hmm. So a couple things that she needs to do. One, she needs to test her progesterone to see what her levels are. If she has a 28 day cycle, Mm -hmm. you know, we know that it's highest on day 21. So you need to test it on day 21. But if you have a short luteal phase, so if she's spotting, she shouldn't be testing on day 21. She should be testing seven days after she ovulates. Right, because that's the highest level that her like we have ovulation, and then seven days after that is when we're going to have the highest level of progesterone. Now, I think she was saying she actually doesn't know.
1: Yeah, she's asking how does she know which which cycle she's in? I'm she must bleed a little, think that's the start of her period, and that, so but it ends up just being spotting. So she wants to know how does she know what stage, what site, what area of her cycle is she in?
0: Okay. So this is where we are going to, there's a couple couple of ways that we could do this. One, she can start taking her basal body temperature. So taking her temperature every day, because we know that there are body temperature changes leading up to your period, you're going to be warmer. And then again, right around your ovulation, you're going to see an instant spike in your basal body temperature. So I would get her, you know, invest in a, they're not expensive, they're, I don't know, they're like 20 or 30 bucks or something on Amazon get a basal body temperature, take it every single day at the same time and start tracking that over several cycles. Mm-hmm. If she is not so inclined, the other sort of crude measurement is, you know, looking in her knickers, looking in her underwear. Um, she can look at the vaginal discharge that she has. And I just want to preframe this by saying, like, I know that some people are like, oh my God, did she just say discharge? But your <laughs> vagina is telling you something. Your vagina, like I'm I'm kind of over this idea that we are So embarrassed about our vaginas and like the period is like the worst thing and like your vagina is a smart, saucy minx. She's trying to tell you something, so listen to her. Mm -hmm. The the discharge that you have over the course of the month is going to tell you what's happening internally. So, you know, obviously during your you know your period, you're you're just seeing blood. You're not seeing much discharge. Once your period cessates, once you stop your period, there's going to be kind of like what's called almost like a dry like dry days. You're not really going to see a lot of you're not going to see a lot of discharge, but mm-hmm. as you approach ovulation, the amount of discharge increases and it's going to change in its texture. So it's going to kind of, uh, almost look like stretchy. It's almost like, um, you know, like sticky. you blew, it's sticky yeah. like you blew your nose or something like that's what it's going to kind right before it's going to kind of uh, go from being sort of stretchy to more egg whitey and uh like translucent like you should be able to if you take your thumb and your finger be able to like kind of stretch it right. that is right before ovulation and then right after ovulation it changes again so you are going to see now that the the discharge is going to be more fibrous. It's going to be more, you know, really because it's more difficult for the sperm to kind of pass through. And, um, the amount of fluid is going to decrease quite a bit. So we start to see, you are either going to see no, uh, you're going to start to see more dry days. So like progesterone actually inhibits the secretion of fluid from the cervix, from the epithelial cells in the cervix. So as progesterone gets higher and higher, in that second half of your second half of your cycle, you're going to see less and less discharge. So you have sort of two dry times. Like one is right before your period, one's right after, and then right around ovulation is like that sticky, egg whitey, lotiony, creamy kind of stuff that that you see in your underwear. And it kind of gets wetter as the closer you get to to ovulation. So she can kind of look in her underwear for uh, for some evidence of that. I would consolidate that with basal body temperature as well.
1: I love that. Become your own menstruation detective.
0: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Chief menstruation detective.
1: (laughs) Look for the clues. Okay. Medina from Pennsylvania is asking, what makes some of us emotional all month? 42. So can't be menopausal yet. Can I?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, maybe when we think about menopause, or perimenopause, it can last up to 10 years. So, you know, depending on when your mother went through menopause, you know, genetically we see a very similar pattern. Like when mom went through it is typically when you're gonna go through it and like, you know, give or take two years on either side. So mm-hmm. at 42, we know that you know, 10 years from that is 52. You're kind of in the drop zone there. So maybe it could also be that you have low progesterone as well. So just like the question previous to this, where it was, I'm getting spotting and Uh, and whatnot. You could also just have low progesterone because low progesterone after, I should say, if she's 42, after the age of 35, we start to have a stepwise reduction in progesterone and there's nothing we can do about that. It just happens. Mm -hmm. But you can do things like there's supplements that you can take. So we can go, I'll go over supplements in a second. I just want to say as well, like if she's emotional all month.
1: All month. yeah. Yeah.
0: I just... Before we kind of dive into like, let's be the detective and figure out the progesterone. You know, I would invite her. I don't know how woo-woo this is going to sound, but it is really important. You know, symptoms are your body's way of talking to you. Mm -hmm. And we often stay in our brains all the time. We're often cut off from our our soma, from our somatic clues. Mm -hmm. And I would invite her before rushing to fix them, to sit with them for a little bit. Why is she emotional? Mm -hmm. Is there you know, what, what is your body trying to tell you? Is there something that you have in your life that is potentially unresolved? Is there a chronic low grade inflammatory process? You know, whether it's an emotional thing from, you know, five minutes ago or 50 years ago or, or whatever to just be okay with exploring that. I think that we are so quick to want to get away from feeling bad and get away from feeling sad. And that, you know, the, and We're going to have Dr. Kelly Brogan on the podcast. I'm so excited to have her on. She, we're going to talk about anger and shame and fear and all these emotions that we are so scared of and we run away from, but they are also part of who you are. It's so important for you to acknowledge them, and the more you ignore them, the you know the bigger the problem is going to become. I would encourage her to just look and sit with them for a little bit. Danielle Laporte talked about shadow work. You know, we I think she was episode four, maybe or or. Five?
1: Six, I believe.
0: She was six. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. So she was talking about shadow work and the importance of going within and shining a light on some of that stuff and having compassion for yourself. Mm-hmm. So I would, I would start there, pick up her, her desire planner thing. Yeah. And I, I don't make any money from, you know, I don't make, you know, I'm not, <laughs> there's no affiliate money, but she's, it's such a brilliant thing. So that being said, if there is low progesterone, there are some things that she can do. So she can increase the fat in her diet, right, and reduce processed carbs in her luteal phase. This is going to improve her insulin sensitivity, which can directly improve you know progesterone levels. When we're thinking about progesterone in particular, if she does in fact have low progesterone, one of the things that we know with with low progesterone, and it there's like a stepwise reduction, you know when we're thirty five and onward is there's mood changes so you know you might be more anxious more irritable there's like breast tenderness that's another mm-hmm. uh telltale sign that your breast, that your that your progesterone is lowering headaches migraines weight gain sex drive so in terms of you know if we're thinking about this in terms of she's doing the emotional work she's being the self-healer she's you know reparenting herself and she's she's accessing you know therapies and you know, self-care initiatives that are gonna really help her. Some of the things that she can do from a chemical perspective is we can be looking at, I mean, we talked about stress management, right? Mm-hmm. We can also think about supplementation. So I'll put in the show notes a couple supplements that I that I really like and that I use myself. One is, and I'm 42 as well, so this is also a concern for me. I'm just officially newly 42, mm-hmm. newly minted, a newly minted 42 year old. So zinc and magnesium, most women Need more zinc and magnesium than uh, than they are getting. So for zinc, you know the low dose there is going to be like five to ten milligrams, and I would be taking that prophylactically, like on on the daily. And for magnesium, the standard dose is somewhere between two hundred and four hundred uh, milligrams. I will go up as high as like eight hundred uh, milligrams with a woman, especially if she's experiencing like premenstrual, like premenstrual, like right before her period. She's you know. Right. She's moody and she's irritable and she's bloated and all those kinds of things. So, those would be where I would start. And when we are magnesium deficient, of course, that's going to increase your uh, blood pressure. It's going to reduce your glucose tolerance and it's going to cause sort of neural excitation. So, I actually really like to take magnesium in the evening. If she's having a hard time falling asleep, she's finding that she's very emotional in the evening. Mm -hmm. Magnesium in the evening is very much a it brings the excitation in the neurons down a little bit, allows you to fall asleep. Another really great thing for someone who is low on progesterone would be Vitex, or um, the, the word is uh, a chased, uh, chased tree berry. It acts very similarly to dopamine in that it reduces prolactin levels, which can also be a cause of low prog. If you have very high prolactin levels, mm-hmm. that can lower your progesterone. So again, standard dose there, 150 to 250. Milligrams, and that will help with the headaches, the migraines, um, and many of the symptoms that we see leading up to, you know, those like premenstrual syndrome or symptoms that we see in the week leading up to menstruation. And then just simply like fat, man, like you got to eat fat. You know, mm-hmm. fat is not going to directly increase your progesterone, but it is if you can increase your fat, and I would also say protein in the week leading up to your period, you're going to improve your insulin sensitivity, which is going to, of course, improve your progesterone levels, like I said. And um, ladies with PCOS, this is particularly important for them. They need to cut out the carbs. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I know that that's a bit of a long and varied response, but I would definitely say for her, looking at having the courage to lean into the emotions and why they are causing her such distress all the time, all month long. I mean, mm-hmm. I would just hate for somebody for that to be someone's existence because it's all month every month. So I would go back and listen to Danielle Laporte. When Kelly Brogan's on, she should definitely listen to, definitely listen to Dr. Brogan and um, a couple of other people that we have sort of in the lineup that we're trying to get in for the, for the podcast in 2020 who are going to be really important for that.
1: All right, so now is when I get to ask you my question. I have two teenage girls at home. I have a 15 and 16 year old and this top every day they come home. Mom, my friend went on birth control. She, you know, she only bleeds three, three to four days now instead of five to six days. My friend went on birth control for this reason, for that reason. It's constant. So my question is, what are your thoughts on the birth control pill for teenagers and what are the long-term effects?
0: Okay. So I consider your daughters, my nieces, Mm -hmm. like I love them. Um, but this is true for all, all girls. And I am not going to mince my words here because I feel very strongly about this. So first, if they haven't listened to my conversation with Dr. Jolene, they should, it was like two episodes because it was so long. I would definitely listen to her. Now I know that, you know, I know your girls, um, and maybe, maybe not, maybe they're rolling their eyes and I'm like, ugh, I'm not going to listen to whatever. So (laughs) I I just, I want to start off by saying that when you look at the data on the birth control pill, the symptoms, the risks that you are putting yourself under, they are so unbelievable that it shocks, it it, it is shocking to me that women will put up with this crap. Mm -hmm. And I will go in so far as to say that, you know, people will say, oh, women's lib and it allows us to, no, this is, this is anti-woman. This, mm-hmm. The pill is anti-woman. And I know I will get blowback for that, but please, if you could just have an open heart and an open mind, let me just kind of lay out my argument for you. So when we think about, when I was, when I was speaking to Dr. Brighton, when I was speaking to Jolene about the pill, and this is not just the pill, this is just hormonal contraception. Okay. So I'll say the pill, but what I mean is hormones, right. hormones that are, that are preventing pregnancy. There's a couple of different things, important things that it does. It's not just that you only get your period for three days, which by the way, is not an actual period. This is a fake period. You're not actually bleeding. It affects your metabolism. It is pro-inflammatory. So you are very likely to get swollen and puffy. And I'm gonna try to talk about this in a way that the teenagers are gonna listen to me. Like you're gonna get kind of fat. Like you're gonna, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna very much be it upregulates something called the NF kappa B pathway, which is very, very pro inflammatory. And there's also cytokines and things that are upregulated there as well. And it's also gonna increase your cholesterol synthesis. So things like your LDL, your low density lipoproteins. So when you pair those two things together, you're inflamed and you have hypercholesterolemia, you have hyperlipidemia. This is a recipe for cardiovascular and cerebrovascular incident. This is a risk for heart attacks and for stroke. I'm not saying anything new. This is in the insert. Like If you look at the insert in the packaging, there is a marked increase or marked risk for stroke and heart attacks. And part of that is because you are upregulating these inflammatory pathways and you are upregulating low-density lipoproteins and this atherogenic behavior in the arteries. So you know, in terms of teenage talk, I would say you're going to get puffy, swollen, and you're probably going to gain weight on it. Um, it also depletes something called uh, CoQ10, which is a really important antioxidant. And your teenager might not really care about this, but I would say this is going to accelerate your aging. Mm-hmm. When we think about your skin, even just, I mean, aging in general, right? Like, you know, we could think about aging of the cell, aging of the organs, aging of the tissues, aging of the system. Let's just talk about what teenagers care about, which is their skin. You are going to see a change in hydration, skin thickness, elasticity, um, and visible wrinkles when you gobble up all your CoQ10. Wow. It affects your brain. So there was a really big, was it Den? Yeah, yeah it, was a den- it was Denmark. There was a huge study in Denmark. They, um, they looked at a million women living in Denmark, on the pill. And what they found was there was an increased risk for first use of an antidepressant, meaning the first time that they were prescribed an antidepressant was coming after they were prescribed the pill, and a first diagnosis of depression, which was found across all types of hormonal constant contraception, and it was the highest among adolescents. Mm-hmm. so the teenagers are girls right like your girls the the depre- like your incidence of mood dis- i mean teenagers are already moody af right they're already moody this is going to increase their you know swings and it's going to lead them to oscillate more towards depression you know we talk you know sexual health this is actually where i you know when we Jolene and i were talking about this i thought this was really what's the word i want to use ironic because yeah all that CoQ10 that's being gobbled up, you have this propensity towards rhabdomyolysis, which is basically muscle pain and weakness. So when we think about this in terms of the vagina, you know, Mm -hmm. painful sex, poor lubrication, vaginal wall atrophy, pelvic floor muscles, which are really important in order for you to have an orgasm, you need to have strong pelvic floor, you know, painful sex, all this kind of stuff. So your libido drops so people get on the pill thinking, "Oh my god, and now I can have all this sex and not worry about a baby." But what ends up happening is you actually want less sex. Your libido tanks. Your testosterone tanks. So it's it changes your your constitution, your moods, the way that you look at sex. You don't want it because it's painful. If right. you can't properly lubricate, you know, the internal walls of the vagina and your your muscles are atrophying and, you know, you don't even want sex to begin with like who's going to
1: I don't and I think I've read that you can't even pick up on pheromones that you would normally think are very attractive you can't there have been women who have been on the pill for ten years gone off yes. the pill and then said, oh, wow my my husband stinks like I don't like the smell of him because you weren't able to pick it up appropriately.
0: Thank you so much. I forgot about that you're yeah. right, so that changes something called your major histocompatibility complex or your mHC your Ability to smell so women, they I think there's um, I think it's called the t shirt test. So they would women on the pill and women off the pill, they gave them t shirts that like men had slept in, and women who were not on the pill selected, they were like, Oh, this t shirt smells good. They were selecting men who were the most genetically dissimilar to them. So that's actually what you want, you want to be able to choose someone with a, uh, a different genetic pool than yours so that you can have the healthiest possible offspring. Mm-hmm. The women who were on the pill chose, they, they weren't able to, they chose different men than those women who were off the pill chose. Mm. And they chose men that were more genetically similar to them. Mm. So w- this is kind of, you know, Jolene put this like, the way that she had framed it was, it's almost like choosing your cousin. It's, yeah which is kind of gross. And then, you know, to your point, there have been many women who have been on the pill, you know, courted, mated, married, you know, their husbands had children, you know, and got off the pill because they wanted to procreate. They wanted to have children. And then they were like, God, this Mm -hmm. guy's like, I am not attracted to this guy's smell. Mm -hmm. Um, So it really does, you know, so one of the things that she said was like, you know, it's okay to, you know, if you want to be on the pill, like, you know, it's a free world. Like you're able to make, you know, as long as you have informed you have an informed consent around it, but just make sure that before you marry your mate, you go off the pill for at least six months before and see if you're still attracted to him. So for your girls uh, or for any, any mom who's listening who has teenage girls, you know, the the thing with teenagers is that they know everything, right? So Everything. everything, I mean, we're stupid, old, you know, whatever we're old goats. They have no idea. So I would say for disease prevention, I would definitely be talking to them about condoms. Mm -hmm. And if we are thinking about contraception, so not wanting to fall pregnant, I would see if they can tolerate a copper IUD, Mm -hmm. uh, which is not hormonal. uh, So it's not gonna, and so some women, like you either love it or you hate it, uh, but you kind of have to go into it um, and sort of test it out and see if that works for you. And I would actually get them to be very familiar with their own cycle in the same way that, you know, we're educating 42 year old and, you know, the the women that have asked these questions for this podcast. I would actually like to start a little bit earlier and get our teenagers really in tune or attuned with their cycle so they can use things like You know, uh, I'll link this out in the show notes. Something called Daisy, which is like a fertility awareness method. It's it's a basal body temperature tracker, and you just basically take your temperature every day, and it tells you whether you're close to ovulating, whether you're ovulating, are you, you know, able to get pregnant right now or not? I would actually get the girls to really understand their cycles first, Mm -hmm. and if they do have things like painful periods or acne or you know, gobs and gobs of blood in their, you know, on their pads or their Daisy. Or whatever they're using, that's an invitation to kind of look at where the hormonal imbalance might be. Uh, The pill is not going to do that. The the pill is not going to fix it. It's going to cover up the symptoms. And you know, if we were to, if we were to say, like, imagine if you, the the reason why the pill exists for the, and this is why I say that the pill is anti-female, because there's a reason why there's no male equivalent to the pill. If I said to a guy, Mm -hmm. "Listen, you're not going to get your girlfriend pregnant." You can have all the sex you want, but you take this pill. It's going to shut down your brain's connection with your with your testes. You're likely going to get depressed. You're going to lose muscle mass because your testosterone is going to tank. You're going to increase the risk for a heart attack, a stroke, and once you come off it, your sperm, your guys, they're probably not going to. They're probably going to be affected. What guy is going to say okay to that?
1: None.
0: None. None. There's like some. There was a joke uh, I was reading. That you know the male pill, the male equivalent of the pill, is like five years away from being offered to the public, and it's been that way for the past forty years. <laughs> you know, it's just it's just never like we assume as females so much risk: heart attack, stroke, Q-T- coq10, like testosterone, mood, depression, like all these things for what? If you if you just harness the if you understand your cycle, you only have a couple days during the during the entire month where you're actually fertile. So if you understand what those days are and you play around with days that you, you know, like we said before, whether you're, you know, there's penetration or not, you can have a really healthy, robust sex life and not cut your brain off from your ovaries. And the bigger problem I have with adolescents is they are still growing up. So, you know, 16 and 14, like their, their frontal lobe their skeleton, you know, skeleton and the and the brain tend to go hand in hand. Like the, the maturity is not there yet. So you give them an exogenous medication that they grow up with essentially. Right. We they, don't know, we they don't know honestly, what's going to happen after it, they're off.
1: It could be 15 years. If, you know, if Haley goes on now, 15, that could be 15 years of, of a birth control pill.
0: And there are no long term studies demonstrating efficacy, none. So it is, it is a gamble and a risk. So, Haley, if you're listening, please get the daisy. And uh, learn your cycle, and we can have a chat. But and any other mom with, with with girls where you're going through this conversation, I'm not even getting into like the disruption of the mitochondria, the vaginal microbiome, the microbiome of our guts. You know, this it it alters everything. And we are not if we are anything, we are houses for our bacteria. We are houses for our microbiota. And if we cannot protect our bacterial lineage because we are destroying it with the pill, we are endangering our future daughters and our future women that is why I say the pill is anti-woman. So yeah.
1: I love that. Thank you so much. Okay. So those are all great questions. We have one more from Nikki. How do you prioritize fixing certain hormones? Example, if blood work or testing or assessment, say you have like 10 things to fix, Mm -hmm. so you feel healthier, how do you know where to start?
0: Okay. So this is kind of going back to what we were talking about at the beginning, this idea of Ah, uh, this mechanistic thing where we can just pull like where do we start with the hormones? Well, we have to start with all of them. You cannot pull out one one hormone in isolation and think that you are only fixing that one. You are going to be affecting the entire system. so I always you know hormonal dysregulation is like a cacophony of it's like it's like it's a symphony, it's this concerto of of events that is you can never just start with one, so what I would start with for anybody. And I and I know uh, who's asking this question, so I'm going to tailor it a little bit to her. Mm-hmm. I would start with working on cellular grit, and it's not just for her. This is really for anybody listening. But I just I just happen to know who's asking this question. And I, I made this this term up. I was talking to Dr. David Sinclair, and I was like, "What you're you know?" He was talking about sirtuin activation and the genome you know genomic instability, and I'm like, "So what you what you really want is cellular grit." And he was like, "Did you just make that up?" And I was like. <laughs> I did I did indeed, sir. So I'm just going to go with that term. Mm -hmm. So you want to be engaging in activities that are going to make you stronger from the cells up. So first thing is going to be sleep. And uh, I know in particular, this person has uh, trouble with sleep, Mm -hmm. but doubling down on sleep is going to be such an important, you know, John asked this before about sleep optimization and hormones. Sleep is cheap it's free it's available to everybody we all need it and it is one of the most balancing things that we can do in terms of rejuvenating things so if we just start with your circadian biology your circadian rhythm first get 8 hours of sleep do it for a week and tell me how you feel like do you remember we had that coffee you were saying this earlier today when you came over we had this sometimes we have superhero coffees where we just have these like awesome people coming over and what was what were you telling me the what was the thing that the phrase that everybody was using
1: it was, you don't know how bad it was until it's good.
0: Yeah. And the same, I think that applies to sleep. You don't know how bad it felt going on six hours of sleep until you get eight, until you feel the energy and the rejuvenative properties that having eight hours of proper sleep can give you. So I'd start off with sleep and then I might work into, I'd start maybe with nutrition. So when we think about some of the things that are the most uh, disruptive in general, when we think about the North American population, I I don't remember the stat, but it's like at least half, uh, maybe, no, I think it's 70%. Somebody fact check me on this, but I think it's 70% of the American population is considered obese now. Mm -hmm. And part of that is because we are having so many processed carbohydrates, easy sugar, and sugar is poison, man. Like, you know, it is just going to, the, the constant bathing of your cells, constant aggregation of blood glucose is just, it is so destructive to hormonal regulation. So I would like to, if we're starting with cellular grit, first is sleep, second is TRE. So time-restricted eating, and we talked about this in the last Ask Me Anything. So at least 12 hours. So over time, you're going to tighten it to eight. A likely weaning off of sugar, right? So we want to be weaning people off of sugar because what happens when we eat more sugar is we want more sugar. And when we eat more sugar, then we want more sugar. And so the vicious, you know, kind of cycle uh, propagates itself. So I'd start one and two there. And then I would kind of work on this is particularly true for women. Uh, men, it's true for men too, but you've got to build muscle. Ladies, you gotta build your muscle mass, especially if you are thinking about healthy aging. It increases your carbohydrate tolerance. It increases your functional movement. You know, you wanna lift up your grandkids, you have to have upper body strength. You wanna be able to travel and put your, you know, luggage in the overhead bin, you have to have shoulder, chest, back stability, core stability. So, building muscle for me is important because. I lump the muscular system in with the musculoskeletal system. So, your bones and your muscles, they talk to each other all the time. The more muscles you have, the denser your bones are going to be. There's a positive, um, and on the flip side, a negative. Like, the more muscle you have, the denser your bones are. The less muscle you have, you know, we are at risk for uh, low bone density and things like fractures and instability. Yeah, it'll be muscles. It'll be muscles and sort of, you know, movement therapy that would come after that. So, I know that that's. Um, kind of a lot of things all at once, but just start with the simple stuff, you know, like start with a cold shower, start with skipping breakfast, start with start with a good sleep. And that is really going to drive the hormonal balance that you want. And that's going to help with your energy, right? Remember energy is all, all it is is like substrate availability, mm-hmm. endogenous and exogenous hormonal regulation. So what you're eating and lifestyle stuff and your enzymatic, you know, change of, of your enzymes over time. So, which is kind of a genetic and, and or uh, an epigenetic expression. So I hope that, hope that that's helpful for her.
1: I think it will be. What a great topic. What a great way to spend an afternoon. I've enjoyed this thoroughly. Thank you so much, Dr. Stephanie. Uh, I don't think we have the topic picked for our next AMA yet, unless you unless you know it. Do you no,
0: not at this time. So we're gonna we'll post it in the Facebook community and we'll see what what people I know posture and rehab was a big one. I think rituals and rhythms were a big one, but I I can't recall which which was which. So we'll kind of just do another poll and see what people want to hear
1: great. So if you want to join our Facebook group, you can go to bettershow.co and it'll link there. Yeah. Thank you so much for spending the day with me.
0: Awesome. This has been great. My voice has been getting lower and lower and lower <laughs> yeah. as we've been talking. I have now have the phone voice. Now I drank the all the
1: liquids while we've been
0: talking. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find all this information at our website, bettershow.co. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-S-H-O-W.co. Maybe the simplest way to keep in touch with me is to sign up for my email. When you go to bettershow.co, there'll be a little pop-up and I send a weekly email on all things mindset, nutrition, fitness, uh, longevity, aging, things that are capturing my attention that week in a newsletter that we call Brain Candy. You can find me on social on Twitter. It's Doctor underscore Stephanie. On Instagram, I am Doctor Stephanie Estima. That's S T E P H A N I E E S T I M A. And finally, a legal and medical disclaimer: This podcast is for general information only, and the advice, discussions, and recommendations that we discuss on this podcast do not replace. Medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare professional's advice or care. There is no doctor patient relationship that has been established in the consumption of this podcast, and the use and implementation of the information contained here are at the sole discretion of the listener. The content in this podcast is not intended to be used as a substitute for any professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment.